in three, two, one. Whether you're leading a team, negotiating a contract, looking to optimize sales and marketing performance, or simply attempting to better frame conversations in everyday life, persuasion and influence expert Stephen McGarvey reveals the proven techniques that the world's most effective leaders use to motivate themselves and others to excel professionally and personally. Join me now for my conversation with Stephen McGarvey. Well, hi, Stephen. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. Now, where are we talking to you from today? Toronto, Canada. Actually, Oakville, to be more specific. I know you're familiar with the area, but to most people, I just say Toronto, Canada. Well, Oakville is a beautiful spot. So you're right down by the water, right down by the lake. So yeah. for the winter, you get those cold winds that come off of that lake. It gets a little chilly sometimes. It definitely does. I like to escape as much as possible in the winter. The out and about and house are the three giveaways that, uh, that people- They know where you're from. They, they yeah. know where we're from, yeah. Exactly. Well, hey, we're delighted to have you. I'm really excited about the subject matter. Your latest book project called Shift, Engaging Minds, Guiding Emotions, and Driving Behavior. And this is one of my favorite subjects. So when we talk about persuasion and influence and doing it with integrity, I love the tools and the tactics that you give there. And you really have some gems and frameworks, most importantly, on how this can be applied. Let's talk about, first of all, before we get into some of the details in the book and some of the highlights of it, I know 20, 25 years, you had your own practice. How did you evolve? You're going to school and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you go, hey, I think I'm going to go do this and write a book. How did you get here? <laughs> the book came a long time after. Sure. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, Michael. I never did well in school. I loved learning, but I hated school. And I failed grade two. They told me I was learning disabled. I still have dyslexia and a bit of ADD. And so school was never something that I really fit into. And so I discovered the field of psychology more from a practical perspective. Sure. Whenever I discovered neurolinguistics. And I did a four-year B in interior design. Believe it or not, I did go to university. I went back as a mature student and applied just to get that piece of paper. And halfway through that university degrees, when I discovered this field and knew that this is what I wanted to do for a living. Oh, that's awesome. And I don't know if you were learning disabled as much as our system. I think you call it teaching disabled. Yeah, It is teaching disabled. And the problem is we have old learning models and people learn more visually. You know, I sometimes show me how to do it. We used to have that old apprentice system. You took a weakness though, and you turned it into a strength. So obviously you started down that path. Now, what led you to the book? So I know you've been doing a lot of counseling work for 20, 25 years. I know you worked in the medical community, a lot of people referring to you with people with phobias, all kinds of things. How did you migrate from that to, hey, I'm going to get my book going on engaging minds and guiding emotions and driving behavior? So I was doing a local TV phobia cure on a local television station, and somebody that was watching it called the office and said they wanted a book, a coaching session. And this individual happened to work in the pharmaceutical industry. And she said, have you ever thought of doing this with the sales forces or marketing departments? And it honestly, Michael, hadn't even entered into my head because I was enjoying private practice. I was learning a lot. I was getting a lot of referrals and able to benefit people. So it never entered into my head to do something like that with it. And she said, well, would you be willing to come in and talk to our sales force? And I said, sure, I'd love to. And the rest is kind of history. We went in and word of mouth spread. And 90% of our work is biotech and pharma. And it's all word of mouth up until the book. So the book came about from demand from our clients. Clients would always say, what book could you recommend? And, and I would say, well, what do you want to know more about specifically? As you can see from my library behind, and that's around the whole room here. I went from a kid who hated reading to a teenager who became a voracious reader because I found a subject matter I was just passionate about. And so the book, 
it was one of those things where it was demand from the clients. And I'm the kind of guy who likes to do things 100% and knock it out of the park. So whenever we started with the book, I was just going to self-publish and give it out to our clients at our speaking engagements and whatnot. And then a couple of people that we had look at the manuscript said, this is way too good to self-publish. You should get yourself a publisher. And long story short, we ended up then hiring a special marketing company and hitting the Wall Street Journal number one bestseller list. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, and it does make sense. And beyond biotech and pharma, the book and the principles apply right across the board. We work in, in over 65 different industries, and I don't know one where this wouldn't work. So glad to have you on Becoming Preferred, and we'll talk about a few of those things. Let's start with the key to persuasion in the introduction. You talk about persuasion. A lot of people, when we bring up the subject of influence and persuasion, they bring up the word manipulation. Well, is this manipulation? Is this some form of manipulation or power? How do you characterize the two? I usually refer back to Dr. Milton Erickson. He was a psychiatrist whose specialty was hypnosis. And his response to something like that, which by the way, Michael, it always comes up. And if it doesn't, I preemptively bring it up at some point. If we're in for a day with a company, I'll preemptively bring it up at some point because if it hasn't come up verbally, it's gone through someone's mind. So I think it's well worth addressing some of these things preemptively. So Erickson would say, it's not whether or not it's manipulation. Life is one big manipulation. Right. If a child can't manipulate a parent, the child would end up dying. So it's not whether or not it's manipulation. It's what's the intent behind it. The example I like to give, Michael, is I could give somebody a hammer and the hammer's not good or bad. The hammer could be used to build a shelter for someone or it could be used to destroy a building or you know break windows or, or do whatever. It's less about the hammer. It's more about the person wielding it. So I think with tools like this, with skills like this, people that put a tremendous amount of time and effort and energy into being good at them fall into one of two camps. They fall into the highly manipulative camp where they're out to serve their own best interests, or they fall into a camp where they're wanting to persuade and influence to help someone achieve something that they want to, but aren't sure how to. And so that's where the private practice came in for so many years. People would come in stuck in a state or stuck in a behavioral pattern, and they weren't sure how to shift it, how to change it. And so they're paying me to manipulate them toward a solution, quite frankly. So it's less about the word manipulation because it tends to have a negative context in general. It's more about what's the intention behind how you're using the skills. So if you're using it for good versus using it for evil, if you're creating a perceived win-win, you know, so that a full 360 would look at it and go, hey, that's a win-win. If we can get you to work out, go to the gym, do your exercise, eat well, we'll use whatever tools we can do that. Stop polluting. We can use whatever those tools are. And you have that in chapter one of your book. A matter of fact, you open it up that way, shifting from your current state to your desired state. And I think that's important. Matter of fact, listening to some of your other interviews, you talk about that. And I really like that. In your book, Shift, you talk about the think, fill, and do process for persuasion. Can you explain that concept a little bit? Unpack that. It's one of those things that came to me in private practice. I started to look for patterns and look to recognize how are people running these behaviors? How are they running these emotional states? Particularly in sales. If we evaluate sales, people think they're going to logically shift someone or logically change their mind or change their behavior. Right. What I discovered was that our thinking impacts our emotions, which drives our behavior. And I'll argue this all day long because I've done over 20 years of private practice that people make decisions based on emotions, and then they justify them with logic. And even things like emotional framing and thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman is a book. Great book. Great book. Great book. And he looks at a study that was done at Harvard Medical School and how something was framed and how it was framed impacted physicians' emotions, which drove different choices outside of their awareness. 
And so I think we've got to understand that our thinking, which includes our stories, our beliefs, our values, how we think impacts our emotional state. And that emotional state, in most cases, out of awareness drives our behaviors. Yeah, I know that was a matter of fact, you have a really good quote that I'm going to put you on the spot. I thought this was brilliant. One of the most succinct definition, perfect definition for anxiety and what anxiety is and changing that state. Share with us that quote. Yeah, it's interesting because that quote, I've tested that quote, Michael, in front of rooms full of physicians, including psychiatrists, and they get a big grin on their face and they go, you know what? That's 100% true. It's brilliant. Yeah. Anxiety, I always say, is an emotion of the future that you can only experience in the now by imagining something that hasn't happened yet turning out in a way that you don't want it to. And and I'll say that one more time. Anxiety is an emotion of the future that you can only experience in the now by imagining something that hasn't happened yet turning out in a way that you don't want it to. And we saw this hold true all through COVID, Michael, where people were imagining all kinds of things that hadn't happened, which was peaking and creating increased levels of anxiety that was anything but useful for them. It's such a great definition because, I mean, it covers it exactly. And I think anytime that I've experienced some anxiety, it's exactly that when you will do the breathing to get out of it. But also you can do the converse of that, can't you? In other words, if we know that thinking can create that new emotion or that emotion of anxiety, can we also do the thinking to create that emotion of, say, confidence absolutely, or, or strength? Absolutely. In in fact, one of the things that we get asked to speak on sometimes is how do we increase someone's confidence? We're just working on a project right now in the US where we're looking at female executives and how do they overcome what's that bias? uh, Oh, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Thank you. Yeah. Imposter Mm. syndrome. And how do they increase their confidence in combination with the imposter syndrome kind of dynamic? And it's the same thing. If somebody can think in a way that creates anxiety, they can think in a way that increases confidence. They can think in a way and imagine. And when I say thinking, it's important to recognize that I'm talking about what are they picturing? What's the internal dialogue? What are they imagining themselves doing? How are we using our imagination holistically that's triggering the emotion? And then I'll always say to people, well, how would you like to feel instead? Well, if you were going to feel that way, how would you need to think differently? So we can kind of reverse engineer that and actually take someone, and I used to do this in private practice, Michael, I would get kids that would lack confidence and get referred to me to increase their confidence. Well, the first thing I want them to understand is that they're in charge of it because then they can leave my office feeling empowered and knowing how to run their brain in a way that makes them more nervous or makes them more confident or makes them less confident. And so I would actually get them, you know, how do you need to stand? How do you need to breathe? What do you need to focus on or imagine? How do you get your confidence to go down? How do you get your confidence to go up? So it gives them a sense of having empowerment over that level of confidence that they want to have. Sure. And it's important for us, I think, to learn how to either plant those seeds that are going to be positive seeds or change, help change their state. So it's not just about learning these tools for ourselves to help our lives personally and professionally. It's helping others as well. You give an example, either Reddit or it was in one of your programs, the example of I say to you, hey, Stephen, I'm, I'm really feeling anxious. I'm really having some anxiety. Yeah. And you would ask me if you say, well, why? And so let's unpack that because there's the reverse of that too. Absolutely, Michael. In fact, I think it's so important that we understand this, that we dedicated a chapter to it in the book called The Paradox of Why. Right. And and it struck me over years where I'd recognized that people were in a negative state, for example, anxiety. 
And then someone would say, well, why are you anxious? Well, the moment I say, why are you anxious? Or what are you anxious about? Or anything along that line? All I'm doing is reinforcing the mental patterns that are triggering the anxiety in the first place. And so I refer to that as going down a rabbit hole. You're growing roots under the very cognitive patterns that are triggering the anxiety in the first place. How would you like to feel instead? Or I'd like to feel more confident. Well, think of a time in the past where you had that level of confidence that you want. How were you thinking? So we can play around with memories and have them access states in the past, remember those states and enter back into them and associate back into them to trigger that state in the now. Right. So it's really the why and the paradox of why. I always tell people, if it's in the context of current state, so if the current state is anxiety or fear or trepidation or, or whatever, if it's undesirable, then I always say, avoid asking the why question. Because all you're going to be doing is growing roots under it and deepening the very thinking that's causing the problem. Once I get them moving to desired state, then I want to take a moment and ask, oh, why does that make you feel more confident as an example? Right. Because now what I'm doing is growing roots under the very thinking patterns that are triggering the confidence and growing the confidence. No, it makes sense. We have a lot of business professionals who listen to the podcast and people whose job it is to influence or sell their ideas or concepts. And everything starts from trust. We have to build trust with the people we meet. And it starts with relationship. And you draw a big distinction between establishing rapport and building relationships. And a lot of salespeople, a lot of business professionals conflate those two and they're different. They're completely different. Let's talk about rapport versus relationship building. Which one comes first? Yeah, Michael, it's a great conversation point because it took us a number of years to actually differentiate these things. Because what I would realize is new people would come into sales, whatever the sales force happens to be, and they're afraid to influence because they think they don't have a relationship yet. They need to build a relationship first. And then I would see people that were 20 years professional sales folk that are afraid to have those deeper level conversations because they're afraid of damaging the relationship. And it really puzzled me and it got me thinking, what's going on here? They don't understand. It's about rapport because how I relate to you. So we refer to in linguistics, we refer to a relationship as something called a nominalization. And we cover this in the book. It's something that we treat as an abstract noun that's actually a process. It's the process of relating. So if you relate well to me, Michael, and I relate well to you, we would say, oh, Michael and I have a good relationship. But really what we're saying is that we relate well to each other. If we don't relate well, we could say, oh, Michael and I don't have a good relationship. What we're really saying is we don't relate to each other that well or haven't been able to yet over X period of time. So I always like to denominalize or turn it back into the process of how am I relating to you? How do you relate to me? And how can we do that better? Because when we do that well, Michael, that's what creates that trust. Yeah, you have that chapter two, working through nominalization and the wheelbarrow test. Is that related to yeah, what yeah. we're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always tell people it's like time. I don't have enough time. And we encounter this all the time with sales folk. I don't have enough time. It's not about time. Time doesn't exist as a thing. Time exists, according to Einstein, as the sequencing and order of events. Yeah, it's construction. So I always tell people, you can put a clock or a watch in a wheelbarrow, but you can't put time in a wheelbarrow. So one of the tests that we can do to determine if something is an anomalization or not is can you put it in a wheelbarrow? If we can't, we're probably treating it or the back of a pickup truck or the back of a dump truck, whatever you want, depending on how big the thing is, right? Right. Like people say, we need more engagement. Well, what's engagement? They treat it as though it's a thing that they can have more of as opposed to the process of being engaged. And how will they recognize when people are more engaged? This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, 
the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Stephen McGarvey. You say that rapport is that first step in relationship building. So what's it take to build rapport quickly? Yeah, so I think there's three primary things that we cover. We cover all the building blocks in the book. There's seven of them you give, yeah. Seven of them, but for the sake of taking a bit of a shortcut to get a sense of how simple this is, the three primary ways that we communicate or the impact of our communication is our tone of voice. So somebody could say the right thing with the wrong tone and it has a completely different effect than saying the right thing with a different tone or the wrong. Yeah, I, different I'm an expert at that one myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you could argue that I said the right words, right. but if it tones off, the impact that it has is different than what you intend. Intent and impact completely different. Yeah. So our tone, the speed that we speak, et cetera, our physiology, what are we actually doing with our physical bodies? So we can right. match and mirror someone, right? And this holds true even with COVID and when people were presenting more virtually, I'd say sit an arm's length and a half back so you can actually use your gestures effectively so that you're not just a talking head on right. Zoom calls or WebExes or whatever it is. Yeah. So we can use our tone to match up with the other person's tone. We can use our gestures to match up and match and mirror their gestures. So voice, tone, and gestures. We can pay attention to their language. So those are the three things. The words that they use, are they more visual? You mentioned this earlier, more auditory, more kinesthetic. So I can listen for that. And then I can respond using similar types of language patterns. In fact, there's a study that was done with lawyers that matched judges' linguistic patterns. And those that matched judges' linguistic patterns were exponentially more likely to win cases than those that mismatch judges' linguistic patterns. To your point earlier, this skill set and everything we cover in the book applies across human behavior. You have a lot of details in there and asking questions is huge too. I want to get into that in a little bit here, but let's say you meet somebody though and you've got off to a wrong start. We tend to judge books by their cover. Yeah. So assuming we get off to a wrong start, how can we repair any damaged rapport that we have with colleagues, vendors, with clients? So we screw up. We come into Montreal and we go into the forum and wearing a Boston Bruins jersey and <laughs> make a speech and right away they don't like you for whatever reasons. Is there a way to repair quickly? I think preemptively understanding the environment we're walking into is one thing. Yeah. That goes a long way. Yeah. That goes a long way to avoiding wearing the wrong shirt in the wrong place. But I think the biggest thing is having the ability to calibrate where you have rapport and where it's being broken and being able to repair it sooner rather than later. And I can step back and say, hey, Michael, I realize I may have touched on a sensitive topic there. I apologize. Let's take a step back and start the conversation again. So as long as I'm aware of doing it, I can step back rather quickly, make amends, and then move forward. I always tell people, move forward only as quickly as you're maintaining rapport. Because when we teach negotiation, it's usually when people get into the details. For example, you brought up politics a little earlier when we were 
talking just before getting on the recording. And if people jump into the details too quickly, that's where they're most likely to break rapport right out of the gate. Whereas if we kind of go in slowly and, and find out what's going on and how the other person thinks, then we can avoid some of those sensitive areas. Yeah, it's be curious, ask questions, listen actively. I found that that's a very effective way as well for establishing rapport, yeah. something you notice. And some people don't want too much rapport. They purposely cut off the rapport. So you have to learn that each style is just a little different. Now, in your book, Ignite a Shift, you talk about the power of certain words. And what are these words? And why should marketers and sales professionals and business professionals use them carefully and with intention? So there's a number of them. A couple of the big ones that we work on people getting it out of their vocabulary, or at least understanding the impact. Number one is the word but. And I think whether it's back to rapport and trust, if I said, that's really interesting, Michael, but it's like I've just deleted and negated the fact that I said what you said was interesting. So it really kind of puts my foot in my mouth and it negates what comes before it. So I always say, that's interesting, Michael. And another thing worth considering is, so using that conjunction of and is a really good habit to get into unless you intentionally want to break rapport and want to interrupt the person. Anytime you hear that but, it's really giving that person the experience that you don't understand them as opposed to that you do understand them, even if your opinion is very yeah comedians have this in their training and what they do when they're at libya i forgot what they call it when they're they're performing and you've got a role and i've got a role and we're giving us a snap we have to yeah. do a scene they don't go but they use and and yeah, improv i think you're thinking improv thank you that's what i was looking for yeah. and so you're validating them doesn't mean agreement it doesn't yeah. mean agreement. So it's a great way to handle anything disagreeable. There's conversations that come up and I see people having political, religious conversations and completely opposite sides of the fence on issues, but doing it in a very cordial and a civil way and having a great time with respect and mutual respect and listening. But it takes those tools in order to do that instead of letting the emotions run over and take over for us. Where does the unconscious fit in when it comes to decision making? Like our beliefs and even our daily activities, like it's all driven from the unconscious, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because some of this stuff applies at the unconscious level as well. Like people aren't necessarily aware of the impact that the word but has at a conscious level. It's right. more, they just feel like you're not listening to them. You don't understand them. They know how they're reacting to it, but they're not necessarily consciously aware of the impact that but has. Try is another one. The word try presupposes failure. And we see this in leadership regularly where people say, what we're trying to get you to do is, or what we're trying to accomplish is, or we want to try to. And it's really painting the wrong picture. It's presupposing failure as opposed to success. So I always tell people, weed out that word try unless you're intentionally presupposing failure and get used to what we're working toward is, what we're accomplishing is. So it installs a sense of success and sense of confidence as opposed to a sense of failure. And again, most of this occurs outside of conscious awareness. So let's define those two terms, the conscious and the unconscious mind. I think that's a good baseline to start with. An easy way to define it is, I always tell people, your conscious mind manages between five and nine chunks of information or pieces of information at any given time. So we can juggle between five and nine balls, if you will, if you want to think of it that right. way, or chunks of information. Anything outside of that, for example, the weight or pressure of your headphones against your ears... Until I mention it, Michael, you're probably unaware of the headphones because it's something you just wear and get used to. Yeah. But notice where your attention goes as soon as I mention the pressure of the headphones against your ears or against yeah. the side of your head. Yeah. Most likely your attention went where? To the headphones. Don't think of blue elephants. Yeah. Exactly. So I would say the conscious mind manages between that five and nine or seven plus or minus two chunks. Yeah. And everything else is what the unconscious paying attention to. 
So the brain is constantly, and that's 2 million bits per second of information is what psychologists will tell us and neuroscientists. So it's a vast amount of information that we delete and we distort and we generalize down to what we're managing consciously. And this is part of the whole persuasive process is being aware of what is someone paying attention to in that current state that's driving those emotions, that's driving those behaviors. What do I need to get them paying attention to instead that changes the emotions and therefore changes the willingness to do different behaviors? That's a real workable definition of the conscious and the unconscious. And I usually give people another example. I say, until I mention it, you're probably unaware of the way your feet feel resting on the floor. And you just see people smiling in the audience because it was so far out of conscious awareness until I mention it, and then it pops into their conscious awareness. That's a really easy definition for people to get their heads around. What does it mean to influence with integrity? And why is that concept so important in the field of sales and marketing or in any field for that matter? Well, when we started this conversation, you mentioned that that word that gets brought in in the context of persuasion and influence, manipulation. Sure. And no one wants to feel manipulated. So I think people want to know that how they're being influenced, how they're being persuaded is in alignment with their beliefs, with their values, with their best interests. And if we know that that's the case, then we'll likely follow that person's lead as they influence in a direction. Whereas if the trust isn't there and we get a sense that they're manipulating us for their own gain, I always say it's kind of like the spidey sense in the back of your neck. The spidey right. sense goes off, the hair in the back of your neck goes up, and you start to feel like, I can't really trust this person. So I think it's all sort of parcel of that trust. And when we have rapport consistently over time, people will tend to trust us. And so it's back to what you said, it's asking the right questions, finding out what's of value to them, why those things are of value, what's important to them, why is it important? And then making sure if what I have to offer, it isn't a solution that's actually valuable to them, that I'm better off to make a recommendation to somebody else in my network that I know will provide a better solution than just sell them something or manipulate them into something. So I think when we talk about influencing with integrity, it's to really get people to realize Influence can be done with and without integrity, quite frankly, right. like the hammer example that I gave you. Sure. From our perspective, we always want to influence, do it with integrity. When we work with physicians, do it with what's best for the patient. Right. Uh, forget about the pharmaceutical company, do what's best for the patient. And when we work with pharma companies, we say, if you need to change a physician's mind to make sure the best treatment gets to the patient, then you owe it to the patient to change the physician's perception. And so I think that's where the integrity comes into play. And that gets down to the, the root of our values and our beliefs and who we are as individuals. Do we have integrity or don't we? Using the pharma example is a perfect example of that. We did a lot of work within pharma and different companies as well. And what people maybe don't understand is that the, the typical general practitioner is, because I think it goes hand in hand here, a good example, is really a quarterback. You go to them with your problem, with your ailment, whatever, they're going to point you in the right direction, give you the proper prescription. So they might have a bias or have a favorite drug particularly that one of the big pharmas recommends because the sales reps are there in that account they're given information well what we found was when the reps are going they usually have one or two minutes with that doctor in between rooms yeah and i got to change this doctor's mind on something so what we learned to do is just simply ask him a question yeah. curious because if we make statements they don't remember if we interviewed the doctor six hours later and they had five visits from sales reps from representing different pharma companies say what did you learn today from each one of them they can't tell us there's no retention yeah. but if we ask them a question hey doc i know you've only got 30 seconds i got a question for you what do you do for a senior female patient 90 years old suffering from dementia this this and this what do you do in that particular case and ask the question well now it becomes a problem for the prefrontal cortex and they're going to work to try and solve that problem and that now goes to work in the unconscious hey doc i have a solution to that particular case 
I'll tell you next time I'm by, or if you got a minute, I'm happy to share with you how to do it. And that's where a lot of times we're shifting. You do this in chapter three of your book, shifting from the unconscious mind to the conscious mind, where we can bring it from here to here. And can we really trust our mind? Right. Does that explain a little more what you're yeah, Absolutely. And it holds true across industries, Michael. Just word of mouth keeps us predominantly busy in farm and biotech, but we've worked in consumer packaged goods with Colgate Palmolive. We've worked in just this year alone, a huge printing company that distributes university textbooks. The techniques apply across industries. And I think you bring up a really good point. When we give information, when we talk, it's easy for the other person's brain and imagination to go elsewhere, to go think about their golf game at the end of the day, to go think about what they're going to cook for dinner, to go think about their vacation that's coming up, to go think about whatever. I always tell people, when you pause and ask a strategic question at the right moment in time, you force their brain to participate and actively process the information, which creates stickiness. Right. So I always tell people, think of what you're communicating and then think of where can I pause and ask the right question that makes it their story. Because if you just tell it, it's your story. Whereas if you ask them the right questions, it engages and guides their mind and it makes it their story. And so we have a rule of three. I always encourage people, ask a question, then ask a follow-up question, and then ask a follow-up question to the follow-up question. And listen for their beliefs, listen for their values, listen for how they think. Because right. that'll give you insight into how to build better rapport with them. I think it's an important insight. And you see this, from what I understand, and you would be able to shed light on this, is we can't be in both places at the same time. So if we have our lizard brain or croc brain or amygdala, they're both operating at the same time. You know, the book you were mentioning, it was system one, system two, your prefrontal cortex is doing all the math, but it tends to be lazy. So it'll sit there and do whatever it does. But if it's already in your database, that's something that's there. It's like Pavlov and his dog, we want to ring the bell and have him salivate, right? Yeah. So I think that becomes an important part of it. Now, as part of this, the questioning way, I think questions are really the answer. I think they're the cornerstone of everything. And you talk about it in chapter six of your book. It's a prerequisite to proper persuasion and influence. It's being understood. It's Stephen Covey's fifth habit, seek first to understand, then seek to be understood. Yeah. So we take the time first to understand them. Where are you coming from? And then we have a chance to be understood. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that gives them that experience of being understood as opposed to feeling like we're attempting to talk them into something. It's right. like, if I don't understand them, how can I know that what I'm offering is an appropriate solution or appropriate service? Yeah, you're going to understand what their needs are and, and give them that experience of being understood. And I, I think, Michael, too often people say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Michael, I understand you. And instead of, I would say, give them the experience of being understood because that's visceral, mm. that triggers an emotional response. Whereas if I use the word but and I cut you off and I, I, and I give you the experience that I'm not understanding you and the rapport is not there, and then I say, oh yeah, Michael, I understand, it breaks the whole thing down, right? And there's no trust there. Whereas if I provide you with the experience of being understood because I ask the right questions, because I use the right language, it builds that trust and it puts me in a much better position. That's interesting, creating the experience of that. It's a great way to actually put that. But it's interesting because we can't necessarily be in both places at the same time. You see this, for instance, and I know you talk about communication, negotiation. In a hostage situation, hostage negotiator shows up, some guy's in the house threatening to hurt his family or whatever the case is, he's angry, he's mad. They don't come in and just start barking orders at the guy. It's, hey, Tommy, this is Officer Johnson or whatever. You're obviously upset. You're obviously mad. I totally get it. We've all been mad before and this is how you're dealing with it. What set you off, buddy? Where are you at? And spend that time. And I know if they can get them to shift into where they start talking about, they can't be in both places. We can move them from the anger point to rational yeah. and then start asking questions or, Hey, I know you're mad, but Hey, can I ask you a question? 
Sure. You can't be in both of those places. So having well-crafted, as you call them, strategic questions really is key to communication and understanding, isn't it? We actually talk about advanced questions in the book as well, Michael, because it's such a key that I want people to get that we can ask questions in a lot of different ways, just as part of our dialogue and part of our conversation. We really point this out in the book. The origins of the word question comes from questio, which means to seek. So when we ask ourselves a question or when we ask someone else a question, we're really sending their brain on a quest. So the question becomes, is the quest that I've just sent their brain on a useful quest or a not useful quest? Is it going toward desired state or is it going deeper into current state? And we mentioned earlier, if I ask an anxious person, why are you depressed? That question just moves them deeper into depression because it gets them thinking of all the reasons why they're depressed. And same with if I forget something and I say, oh, why am I so forgetful all the time? That question, that internal dialogue in the form of question gets my brain responding with, oh, because you're getting older. Oh, maybe you've got Alzheimer's. Oh, maybe this. Oh, maybe that. Oh, your parents were forgetful. It's just part of who you are. So how we ask questions of ourselves and other people literally engages and guides the imagination on a quest. Yeah, it's interesting you do that. I started journaling this last year. And when I first started attempting it, I was just start with Dear Diary. Today I had eggs, you know, what I was like, what yeah. do I write? And I decided, well, why don't I just interview myself? So I created a template with at least five questions. And I start with, God, what are you grateful for today? Yeah. And I answer the question, what am I grateful for today? Because it could be different than tomorrow and different yeah. than yesterday. What do I want to accomplish today? What relationships do I want to work on today? And so I ask myself these series of questions and I answer. So it works, even if you're interviewing yourself, is to be inquisitive, inquire and be curious, right? And now in chapter eight, you talk about the million dollar question. Is there actually a million dollar question? It's funny that you bring that up because it was actually one of our clients once. And when I was pointing out, most salespeople are familiar with open versus closed questions. Sure. But I always tell people, I would rather them ask, if they're going to ask a bad question, I'd rather it be a closed question than a bad open question. It'll do less damage. Let's put it that way. Sure. So when we got into this whole, the nature of questions, open versus closed, and the quality of the question. So it's not just, is it open? It's where is it sending the brain on a quest to? Is it moving in the right direction toward desired state? Is it cleanly eliciting current state without biasing it? And so one of the clients actually said, he said, oh, a light bulb just went on in my head. He said, we're looking for cheat sheets of questions. It's not about getting cheat sheets of questions. It's about asking the million dollar question. The reason I chuckled at that is in my book, I actually talk about a million dollar question that I learned, and it actually is a million dollar question. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, absolutely. Please. So it's from a local Toronto, Ontarian, Dan Sullivan. I was in Strategic Coach, started in the 90s. And Dan Sullivan, in his books and his trainings, this is his question. And so I come in, I meet with you as an executive, and I sit down with you, first meeting. And I sit and I just go, Stephen, hey, thanks for the meeting, opportunity. In order to make best use of our time, I've prepared a couple of questions for you. With your permission, I'd like to ask them. It'll keep us focused and on track. Okay, if I ask the question. And you go, yeah, sure, go ahead. Here's the question. I want you to imagine, so this is to your point, taking him on the journey. I want you to imagine three years from today. I want you to imagine to go three years out in your head. So we're in 2023. I want you to go out to 2026 in your head. Now, I want you to look back at the last three years. What needs to occur for you professionally for you to be happy about your progress? So I want you to go out three and I want you to look back. What needs to occur for you for you to be happy about your progress? Now, there's only three answers. Number one is, I don't know, which tells me you're not forward thinking or visionary, which is really hard to help you. Number two, you're going to go none of your business, which means you don't trust me, right? And I have had that happen twice. And in both of those instances, I just folded up my book. I said, well, I guess our time's done. And the executive said to me, 
what, what, what did I offend you? And I said, well, no, I, I asked that question for a reason because there's only three answers. No, they're curious. And I said, number one is you don't know, which means you're not visionary or forward thinking, can't help you. Number two, you don't trust me. I believe relationships are built on foundations of trust. So if we don't have trust, let's just stop right now. And number three, you're going to tell me. And whatever you tell me, our goal at our organization is to do everything we can to help you close the gap between where you are today and where you want to be three years from today. So when you engage with our organization, we're going to help you close that gap. And that's a million dollar question because they'll usually tell me. They'll go, oh, three years. Yeah, we want to open up more offices. We want to expand into this. They're telling me their game plan. Yeah. So that goes into my offering or whatever, my pitches, assuming I can do it authentically and it weaves and it makes sense. But it's a million dollar question, literally. It's and, a really good one because it also finds out, do they actually have goals out three years into the future? And are they aware of the steps or the process that they need? So have they broken it down? Have they used like, we call it the smart model and we cover it in one of the chapters in the book as well. Have they broken it down into knowing what needs to happen and what the steps are to accomplish what that is that they want to accomplish three years from now? So I love that question. It's a really good one. Well, and it goes to the story. It goes into what you're talking about. Chapter nine of your book, you're all about the story. And when we have the story, there's the hero of the story. And we always want to try and make the, the client the hero of the story, the character, main character. We want to be the guides. And we guide through asking questions. Think Star Wars, Luke Skywalker. He's driving around on the planet shooting critters. And all of a sudden, Darth Vader and the Dark Star comes in and starts blowing up stuff, right? And in comes the guide, Obi-Wan Kenobi. doesn't solve his problems for him, teaches him right? Asks him questions. And when he doubts himself, he gets him to ask questions that are journey questions, taking him out there. What would happen? How do we do this? So you lead into the story and every good story follows that kind of hero's journey. People were conditioned for stories. We love stories. Our grandkids, our children, hey, go get your pajamas on and Papa's going to read you a story. It creates action. People love hearing story. And you call it, and you give a lot of details, but stories versus facts and the magic of a good story. Unpack that one. I think, Michael, you just nailed it. It's part of the human narrative, right? We love stories. We're brought up with stories. Before there was written communication, there was verbal communication with stories. And so I think it engages the imagination and it transports us to different places, different times. Your million dollar question transports me three years into the future and then has me evaluate what needs to occur in order to accomplish that. So I think stories allow us to effectively engage and guide. And they also are a brilliant way of changing the narrative, of changing the storyline, because there's a number of books on therapeutic metaphor and how powerful metaphors are within the context of therapy. Because if I'm running a script and a story in my head that's disempowering, and you engage and guide me on a storyline that where a character that has a similar dynamic going on in their lives discovers something and realizes something, it's very, very useful. Erickson used to use metaphors all the time in the context of psychiatry and therapy. So I think stories are powerful because they engage the imagination and and they can create an, an empowering narrative that has me thinking differently as the listener of the story. And then just to weave in questions, I think as the storyteller tells the story, the best storytellers, they pause at certain parts in the story and ask those questions because those questions engage and guide the reader or the listener and associate the listener or the reader into the storyline. So are you familiar with the term dissociate or associate? And I'm assuming you are based on, on our sure. conversation. Yeah. So there's times when you want to disassociate someone, for example, from negative emotions, or you want to associate them into positive emotions or empowering emotions. And I think that stories are really, really powerful ways of doing that. And I always tell people a story doesn't have to be a little red riding hood and a five minute, 10 minute, half hour story. A story can be a quick metaphor. Life is an uphill battle. That's the story I tell myself. 
Or what if we turned it around so it was like a slide and you could slide into whatever outcomes you wanted? Well, that changes the metaphor, changes the story. So what are we telling ourselves? What are others telling us? And how do we engage effectively in moving from current to desired state with whatever that storyline is? No, it makes sense. I just watched a documentary with James Cameron and an interview on his movies and his latest one, the second avatar. He's top four grossing movies of all time. We're talking two billion plus. Three of them are his out of the four. And what's the power of his story? and his stories are universal and that's what makes them successful globally they're universal stories so people are people we think the same way we have the same parts we have the same blood flowing through our veins we might have different color skin on the outside but at the end of the day we talk we feel all right we think and we can be persuaded the same way and those are all common things that we have in our lives so this absolutely interesting Stephen. the book is called ignite a shift i know they can find you at www.solutionsinmind.com we'll put all the information in the show notes what's next for you what's next we just got back from researching around south america i always like to see how does all this hold true in different cultures sure and it's fascinating, even communication, where you speak very different languages. How do you communicate when you've got a different language? Back to that whole rapport thing, uh, gestures have a huge impact Everything. on communication in different languages. So continuing to research, continuing to have some some fun and continue to do what we do. We love it. So Awesome. Okay, I've got to ask you this question. I don't ask this of everyone, but I'd be curious. We all have superpowers right? We all have a superpower. What's your superpower? What's the thing you can brag here? I know you were dyslexic, you have a learning disability, but you've turned that all into a strength. But what would you say your superpower? Something we maybe don't know, doesn't come out through the interviews or in the book, something you can brag about that, hey, you know what? I'm really good at this. What would I, it be? You know what I, I think it's making connections. Like when I talk to clients and yeah. find out what the totally problems are, I'm good at making connections and I'm good at coming across, I believe, congruently. Like clients will say, you've been doing this 20 years. How do you stay so excited about it? Like you get everybody pumped up or you get everybody engaged. And I always tell people, if I didn't believe this stuff worked, I couldn't do what I do. And in fact, I tell our audience, if you don't believe that what you represent is the best of the best, then go find what you think is the best of the best and represent it because you'll be more congruent about how you communicate it. Well, so I, and that comes across your tone, your cadence, uh, that energy that comes behind it. So definitely want to listen to you. Now, like superpowers, they also have their kryptonite. What's your kryptonite? For me, it's detail. I have people who are amazing. And I know you have a whole team that brought your book together and you're yeah. proud of them and see your team members on the website. I know you get to work with your life partner and your wife yeah. as also a partner in your business, but what would be your kryptonite? My kryptonite is process and detail. So I'm more of a big picture strategy and I really fall short on the process and the detail. So I surround myself with people that have strengths in those areas and then make sure you've got the right people that you can trust and trust them to do what your kryptonite is. I'll look at the detail once they're mapped out and I'll agree or disagree or maybe push the boundaries. How many other ways could we accomplish this? But that process and that detail is definitely my kryptonite and my weakness. The clients will always smile when they see Natalie in the meetings because they know that Natalie, who's my wife and business partner, she's process and detail and she captures all of it. So yeah, I can I see from the big picture. My wife, Beth, is the same. She comes to the meeting, she runs our organization, because if I did it, we wouldn't have one. So <laughs> yeah. It's all good. Awesome. Hey, Stephen, this was really fun. Thanks so much for being our guest. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.